0: Greetings everyone, today in this podcast we will be covering a wide range of topics which are designed to help students in their careers. We are here in this podcast with a distinguished particle physicist, Mr. Srihari Gopal Krishna. Good afternoon sir. Good afternoon. Sir, so today we will be talking about how... What inspired you to be a particle physicist?
1: Okay, so um, I've always had an interest in uh, knowing about how the universe is put together. And uh, it is something that I would read a lot of material on, like magazine articles, newspaper articles, anything that I came across. And it's just like anything else. You know, we read so many things and I would just be reading this and that. And uh, this is also one of the things that, uh, that uh, I would be reading. And so the more I read about it, the more fascinating it seemed, because it's a very, uh, it's a world which is kind of hidden from us. It is not apparent to us right when we look at something, but all of the details about how the universe is put together. And so the more I learned, it became apparent to me that know just if you look behind a layer there is this whole vast uh, you know framework which is hidden to us and it has become amenable to uh, humans to get a glimpse of that world and over the last 200 300 years systematically we have assembled a lot of uh, knowledge about how the universe is put together and that always fascinated me and so this was just an interest in the beginning, Um, but later on, I started uh, doing it more rigorously and more and more time devoted to it. I started taking courses in physics and it was a a gradual evolution, a slow evolution, but eventually I started doing it full-time and then I got a PhD in physics and now I really do that full-time. So it is a gradual evolution, you know, like, based on my interest. And I have just been following my interest. That's a short summary of how I was led to this
0: thing. And uh, this can help students find their own path. And uh, I think this story of yours has an impact in students. And it can help them find their own thing, their own profession. Sir, my next question for you is... What does a particle physicist do every day? Like, what does he
1: do? It's a very complicated question. So like any, um, any profession, there are many things that you have to deal with. Some related to physics, some not so directly related to physics, but still academics. And some, nothing related to academics, but administrative. And so there is a, you know, like any profession, there are many different things that come up. But to put it shortly, you know, a big chunk of time, most of the time is devoted to asking this question. You know, we know certain things about the world. And the question is, what else is there? We certainly know that we don't know everything. That's obvious to every one of us. And so there is many more things about nature that we wish to find out. And so this is an ongoing quest which never ends. So every day we try to make a little bit more headway in knowing about how the universe is put together. So we might be working on some research problem in answering these kinds of questions. We usually pick some very well-defined problem and work on it for a few months or a few years or something and get some answer. And then maybe we ask a related question or a not so related question, whatever seems interesting to us. And many times when you find out something that will help you pose the next question which you want to ask, So this is a continuing thing and we keep going so on a day-to-day basis we are always working towards some goal you know we ask some questions particle physics as i've told you is a little bit technical things are a bit hidden so it becomes a bit abstract and you need to wrestle with it somewhat in order for the answers to come out and so that involves a lot of techniques which you need to learn and apply And so it is a long series of calculations. I am uh, a theoretical physicist, so I do a lot of calculations. And so at the end of a long calculation, there may be some insight and some summary of how things are behaving. And so on a day-to-day basis, it is taking it slowly step by step towards some uh, uh, completion of a problem that you have posed. So that's, um, that's what I can say about how, uh, you know, we go about it every day. And I also, uh, because I'm a faculty at our Institute, I teach courses, I interact with students, so there is a training element also. And so that's another thing that takes up my time in training other people. And, you know, we go present our work in conferences and workshops and we learn from others. So, uh, there is some interaction that takes up some amount of time. Um, and so, this is about how our time is structured. Thank you, sir. And
0: um, my, thank you, sir, for the intel. And um, I'm sure uh, many students have uh, have been pushed more into this field. And I, I'm sure we can encourage them. And uh, my next question for you, sir, is... Uh, I'm sure you know uh, CERN, the particle accelerator. And um, yes. could you give us a bit of an introduction to it for the students who don't know? And uh, could you explain what exactly happens
1: there? Okay. So, um, will I be able to uh, pull up? Uh... So, this is um, showing a cutout of some pictures of the Large Hadron Collider which is at the CERN facility. And CERN is a a multinational collaboration, uh, mainly led by Europe now, um, but also it is a worldwide collaboration. Um, Many, many, many countries, in fact, uh, hundreds of countries perhaps are members of uh, the collaboration. And it is a collective effort to try to unravel what is going on at a very short distance scale. So uh, here is a picture of the collider that is at CERN, and so what it is doing is colliding protons. And uh, what is true in nature is when you put in some amount of energy in some region of space, you put in a lot of energy, new particles can be created. You might be familiar of E, are familiar with E equal to m c squared, which is the famous yes, Einstein's sir. equation for creating mass from energy. So what CERN does is collides protons with very large energy and uh, puts that energy in a very tiny region of space. And from that energy, new particles can get created. And so this uh, graphic here is showing one such particle that gets produced, for instance, the Higgs boson. The Higgs discovery happened at CERN in uh, 2012 and so that happened by simply that the second graphic that is being shown here you see is um um so the protons collided this way and the Higgs got created in the center part and then the Higgs boson is an unstable particle so it decays and in this case it has decayed to two photons photons are light particles So the two light particles are being recorded by this massive detector. The cutout of the detector is shown here. And so this is a detector surrounding the collision point. So the the light particles that are coming out photons are going through all of these detector elements. This thing is gigantic. You may not get the scale of this round thing here, but it is about uh, four or five stories tall you know, it is that big of a detector. And so it records all of these particles that are going through. And then we reconstruct what might have happened in this place that the energy was put in. And so in this case, if a characteristic signature of the photons goes through the detector and is recorded, we can reconstruct and say that, oh, this might be due to a Higgs boson that is decaying into two photons. So this is just one example. Of the new kinds of particles that get created at the LHC, which is a large hadron collider, which is operating at Sun. So there are many, many such new particles that are produced, and we study that. When I told you that the world of the particles, and, you know, some aspects of nature and how the universe works is all hidden. This is what I mean. It's not yes. very apparent to us, and we need to build all of these very big. Machines, in order to learn about these very subtle things that are going on. And uh, the Higgs decays in a very tiny fraction of a second, maybe 10 to the minus 20 seconds or something. You know, it's like a very short instant of time that it lives and then decays. And uh, we have to piece together what happened and then try to learn about the fact that the Higgs was there and it got produced. And that way we have learned about many, many particles that are uh, produced. And so here is one summary of all of the particles that we know right now. And so um, this not only at CERN, but over the last hundred years or so, we have assembled this picture. And right now CERN has the largest energy accelerator operating, and it has um, helped us to complete this picture. Like if you look at the center, it is the Higgs. And the big discovery coming out of CERN in the last 10 years or uh, 11 years is um, the discovery of the HITS. So there are many such programs happening at CERN. This is just one example of what is done at CERN. Yes, sir. And this is then more directly related to what I think about. So, which is why I brought this example.
0: Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. And uh, my next question will be how does a professor like contact cern and you know test their theory out like is there like a process or how many people have to get involved in it
1: yeah very good question so this is very specific to my field which is uh, particle physics which is also called as high energy physics and it varies depending on what, what kind of a scientist you are, what kind of a physicist. Very different modes of working. So uh, if the question is more specifically about my area of research, then the answer that I'll give you is you have to bear in mind is very specific to that field. Not everybody operates like that. But in my field, the way it has worked is that it has become a very uh, difficult thing. If you look at this uh, set up here. This is a gigantic machine. In fact, this accelerator uh, ring that you can see here goes on for 27 kilometers. It is a big circle. It is filled with magnets like this for 27 kilometers. You can see people standing here and the beam line going. And so uh, this thing is a huge machine. And you can imagine how many thousands of people it takes to maintain this kind of a machine and operate it. So it is a very complicated enterprise and a huge number of people come and collaborate in order to get this done. And so uh, a professor or a scientist will be involved in uh, building this machine, getting it to work, getting it to run properly, and then data taking. And once the data is taken, it is put onto computers, you know, data storage huge number like petabytes of data is stored and uh, later analyzed in order to find something like the higgs boson here so all of this takes a lot of manpower and a particular professor might be involved in one part about this whole enterprise it's usually collaborative and so that is what i am talking about is on the experimental side but i am more of a theoretical person i don't per se work on the experiment directly but what i'm involved in is in uh, keeping track of what findings there are from the lhc from the cern program from the Large Hadron collider and then taking clues from the data and asking what might we be seeing how can we interpret this thing you know what new things might we be able to find and how might we be able to look for things that we don't know yet Yes. So these kinds of things. So I don't work directly with the Sun machine or directly with the data, but my colleagues who are known as experimental physicists are more involved more directly in running the experiment, analyzing the data, and finding uh, things that come out of the accelerator. But I am involved more indirectly. So uh, whenever the the Large Hadron Collider uh, collaborations. Uh, find something they will usually publish and we keep track of the publications they will also give presentations they will uh, give seminars so we keep track of all of that and we'll get to know what might be the latest findings from CERN and so on yes sir and then we are involved somewhat indirectly through that kind of a process
0: yes sir thank you sir and um... My next question will be, like, um, the institute you're working in, does everyone collaborate with each other? Like, how does collaboration work in an institute, like between professors?
1: Yeah. So, again, it is a very uh, person-dependent thing. You know, some people collaborate more than others. And... um, some people sometimes collaborate more than at other times right sometimes you want to work on your own sometimes you know if depending on what problem you've asked it may need the collaboration of two three four people or even larger sometimes um, so in our institute there are various specialties and so there are a few people in particle physics in our institute. Uh, um, which is the Institute of Mathematical Sciences in Chennai, there are about uh, five or six of us who do this kind of particle physics, which is called as high energy physics. Oh, and yes. particularly the branch that I am in is called phenomenology. So I work in something called high energy physics phenomenology. And we are about five of us. And uh, we don't always necessarily write, uh, you know, papers together all the time. Sometimes we collaborate, sometimes we work with some outside people also, they could be in any institute. Many times they're in different countries also. When we meet in conferences or something, if we happen to pose a problem collectively, then we can go back to our institutions and work. So many times it is a very international collaboration also. So uh, not everybody in the institute will be working together, depending on the subfield. And sometimes there are even cross-disciplinary things, you know, when we just chat about things. There might be some problem that strikes as interesting and a few of us might get together and work on it. And so there is all kinds of things that uh, happen. You know, it is uh, very hard to uh, categorize it saying that this is the mode of working, you know, depending on the person and, you know, which set of people, you know, very different styles of working are there
0: thank you sir and uh, since you have mentioned the Higgs boson could you yeah could you elaborate a bit more like what is a boson
1: okay so um, so here so this uh, infographic um should help us appreciate you know what are the kinds of particles that we have in, in nature and by the way this one graphic summarizes everything that is there as fundamental building blocks in nature that we have been able to find and we think that this forms a complete picture and so uh, if you look at here what are called as quarks and leptons are what we call as fermions meaning that they are half integer spin particles So what the spin means, you know, like every fundamental particle is kind of like a small spinning top. So uh, it has a certain magnitude of spin. And if the unit of spin is one half, we call it as a fermion. But there are other particles here, for instance, what are called as the forces here. There are four particles here. They have one unit of spin. And therefore, they are bosons. Anything which has integer number of spins, spin, is called a boson. And uh, if it has zero spin, in other words, if the particle looks like it is not spinning at all, that is the Higgs boson here in the middle. That has zero spin. Even zero is an integer, and so it is thought of as a boson. But this number of particles here, the Higgs and these four force carriers are bosons and they have integer spin whereas the quarks and leptons have spin one half and because they are half integer they are called as fermions and we know now that if it is a boson or if it is a fermion it behaves very differently in fact all of the matter particles are fermions they need to be fermions for the stability of matter you cannot make chemistry, you cannot make uh, substances behave the way it does in our world or in our universe without having fermions. If, if you have heard of poly exclusion principle, this is something that we learn in quantum mechanics yes, or sir. in chemistry. All of chemistry, the basis of chemistry is the poly exclusion principle. We have elements yes, and sir. we have valence electrons and all of that because of spin and because of the fact that they are fermions. And you cannot put two fermions in the same state, in the same place, for instance. And that means different electrons should occupy different orbitals. And you have the concept of valency and you have chemistry. And because of chemistry, you have life. All of that follows because electrons are fermions. And you see electron is just one lepton that we have here. But we already know that there are many, many more fermions than just the electron. And yes. so, this is a concept of a fermion. And in contrast to fermion, you have the bosons, which is the Higgs and the force carriers. So, that is the distinction between fermions and bosons.
0: Thank you, sir. So, one more question. What I wanted to ask yeah. was, is there anything that a student should be doing right now? Into like, Is there any... like? tips you have so that a student can aspire to be a particle physicist?
1: Um, sure. Yeah. So one thing I can say is that um, all of us are curious. We want to know many things. I think of it as a very basic human fact. Yes, sir. That every kid, you know, is very cute, right? I mean, they want to know, they learn. They pick up this thing, this thing. If they find some mud, they'll put it in, it, uh, in their mouth. They're very curious to know what it is, and they don't know, right? I mean, they don't know that one should not pick up mud and put it in their mouth. They're still learning, right? But they're curious. They want to know everything. So that is very innate in all of us. We want to know things. And uh, so somehow in going through life and in going through school and homework and this and that, we lose that curiosity, you know, that that I believe is innate and inherent in us but because of how our curriculum is structured and how our school life is structured and how our home life is structured and there are a lot of challenges in in this right and so we somehow lose that and so if we can bring that back i think we are inherently curious and if you follow that curiosity that you might be curious about how the universe is put together or how the world is uh, put together Yes, and you sir. just follow that curiosity where it leads you is in all of this, and that's all you need to do. Just follow your interest, follow your curiosity. And if circumstances allow, and if you can uh, go in that direction, then great. Sometimes circumstances present circumstances may not allow it, but if you have an active interest and you're reading widely about everything, it is all there. And when the circumstances present itself and situation presents itself you might be more willing to take that path if it is possible so all i can say is be curious about everything learn everything that you can think of particles and the universe is should be just one other thing that you learn and i don't believe in getting too focused early on in school and all that just read widely or talk to everybody that you can like what you're doing right now is a very important thing you just talk to people talk to various different kinds of people get to know what is there read this read that read magazines read books and you know, look at uh, documentaries look at television shows look at movies investigate how movies are made you know see how stories are written explore everything and uh, articles is also one of the things you have e- explored If that is something that you are very curious about exploring, go a little bit farther than something else and uh, whatever interests you, go as far as you can go. And at some point, if you become interested enough in something, then maybe you can even contemplate taking that as a profession and going full time and all that. But even otherwise, it's fine even doing two, three different things and you know, like um, sharing the interest, everything is fine because each one of us has very different circumstances. And it is very hard to give a recipe for how everybody should be following one single uh, single thing or whatever. So all I can say is if you're interested in something, read more about it. Talk to people who um, who specialize in that, get to know more about it. And perhaps it will lead you somewhere.
0: Yes, sir. Sir, uh, thank you for this amazing tips and um, since you mentioned fundamental particles before like isn't that the basis of cosmology like uh, getting to know what is the origin of the universe so can you please elaborate yeah
1: very good question so let me bring up this um, infographic so uh this thing is showing the connection between particle physics and cosmology and uh, this is a very good question that you ask and uh, it is a very fascinating uh, story of how these two are so tightly intertwined you know we, we know today in the last 30 to 40 years i would say We have found remarkable things. We have learned so much stuff about this connection that, you know, it is incredible. You know, just about maybe even 25 to 30 years ago, we were kind of in complete dark about this aspect about the universe. And today we can very confidently say so many things about how tightly connected particle physics and cosmology is. And this infographic is showing that thing. So we believe today and we have very irrefutable or irrefutable uh, evidence that the universe was in a very hot state in the early universe, fractions of a second after the birth of the universe. and the birth of the universe itself, you may know is called the big Bang. Yes. And so the big Bang happened it start at a very uh, you know 13.7 billion years ago and that's what is shown here as this orange spot and since then the universe has been expanding yes and so whenever something expands we know from basic thermodynamics is that it cools so the universe has been expanding since the big bang and cooling but in the very early instance of time the universe was very very hot and so when things are very hot High temperature also means that the constituent particles making up the high temperature gas or whatever is moving around very, very fast. It has very large velocities and when things are very large velocities, they also have large energies and when large energies are present as I told you e equal to MC squared and you can create yes, very massive particles, which we don't find in our everyday world, but are created in fleeting instances of time. They, they're created and they decay away very quickly, and that is what sun, as we mentioned earlier, is finding. They produce all this. The sun accelerator produces all of these particles, which live for a very brief instant and decay away. And uh, instants after the Big Bang in the universe also was doing the same thing. Very uh, heavy particles. That the same particles that I showed you that table these particles are produced in the early universe, in the hot phase, and they decay away. And so how is it that you are able to study the universe without knowing about the particles? It's not possible. If you want to really know about how the universe behaved in the very early instance of time, you should know what that hot gas is made up of. And that particles that are making up this hot gas in the early universe Is nothing but these fundamental particles and these fundamental particles are present in this early epoch here that is shown in this part and so you can see things like w z top all of the fundamental particles that are in the table is all propagating in this very high temperature phase in the universe and as the universe cools they condense and so they condense and eventually you form galaxies and stars and everything and what we are made up of today and all that is a very late epoch. This is showing present day time much, much, much after the Big Bang. And so this has all condensed now into stars and galaxies and planets and us and all of that. We are a very late time phenomenon. But if you go backward in time, we know that the universe was very hot and these fundamental particles are present there. And this picture is very solid right now because of our knowledge of particle physics and of cosmology and astrophysics. We have been able to piece together from all of the evidences through telescopes that we have been able to gather that it forms a very consistent picture. We are very confident about this picture. It is not, it is not very doubtful. The evidence is very solid, but yet we have many puzzles that remain. Some more recent ones are tentative. We are yet to nail it down. We are studying it more. You may have heard about things like dark matter and so on. Yes. We don't know too much about. And so uh, these are all aspects that we are finding, but still they remain open questions. You know, it's not like we know everything. But the things that we know, many of the things we know solidly now, from very firm experimental evidence and also from the theory of the standard model of particle physics. You know, we can describe the universe very precisely using Einstein's general relativity applied to cosmology. And it forms a beautiful, consistent picture where we have enormous power in order to describe what we are observing. And that will also help us, you know, like know what else might be out there. If you have a good framework, you can put it to the test and see how well it is working. And if it's not working, what new things might be out there which if you put in it will work fine so that is the exercise that we are involved in and and, uh, much of what has come in the last 25 to 30 years is quite remarkable in this connection and this is a very important thing that you have brought up that this connection is there sir my next
0: question actually this leads to my next question so are all yeah. sciences interrelated to each other like um, certain other than certain aspects are they are all sciences just one
1: that's a very deep question and um, very perceptive question there are many levels with which i can answer that and so um, one broad answer is the methods of science are common it is the same thing You know, we don't want to fool ourselves. We want to be led by evidence and not by our prejudices. So you want the data to lead you wherever it takes you. You don't want to prejudge too many things about how things should be. So in all of the sciences, a common theme is look at the evidence, look at the data, be guided by that. That's a common thread. So in that broad way of speaking, all science follows the same method it has the same intention, it has the same, uh, you know, methods that should be followed. But that's a very broad statement. If you look at what it takes in order to gather evidence in uh, let's say biology versus how you would gather evidence in particle physics, the tools are very different. So in that sense, they're not the same because what you need expertise on is very different you're a biologist you would need very different tools than if you're a particle physicist right although the the philosophy behind it is the same the methods and techniques are very different and many things are hidden from us you have to look very very carefully if you don't look carefully enough you will be led astray you will make all kinds of mistakes in conclusions so we have I've learned over the centuries uh, on how to guard against this thing. Be very careful, make observations carefully before you reach conclusions. And so you need to be careful, which means that you need to build instruments which will help you that. Not everything is uh, very apparent to us because we are macroscopic objects. We work in, you know, centimeter scale and uh, meter scale and so on. But if I can go to this, uh, infographic here um this is showing okay this infographic is showing the scale of things you see the atom is shown to be you may not be able to read this but it says 10 to the minus 8 centimeters i think it's um it's a very tiny distance scale and so the tools that are needed to study the atom with that distance scale And if you go further, we know all of these things. We know that the atom is made up of a nucleus and an electron. Nucleus is further made up of a proton and a neutron and the proton and a neutron is made up of quarks and the distance scale that is relevant for quarks is of the order of 10 to the minus 17 centimeters or something like that. It's an incredibly tiny distance scale. And what tools you need to study are very specialized. The accelerators that we spoke about at CERN and all that; those are the kinds of tools that uh, that you need to deploy in order to learn about the universe that is operating at that distance scale. And the same thing if you are now going to do cosmological measurements, you know, like at very large distance scales, so at the scale of galaxies and so on, right? Yes. The tools that you know, the telescopes and the space satellites and all of that, very different right? It's not like building an accelerator. It's a very different set of skills that you need to uh, learn in order to do that. Whereas, If you are a biologist, you would uh, be doing microscopy, you would be doing genetics, you would be collecting specimens, right? It's a different set of tools that you need to deploy. Each one has a different domain of applicability. You operate within that domain. There are some, you know techniques which you apply in that domain so in that sense they're not all the same so it depends on how you look at it so in some sense they all have the same goal it is about learning the universe whereas when you come to specialization and the profession and the practices that you have they might be very different
0: thank you sir so my next question is uh the recent launch of aditya l1 and chandrayaan 3 have been successful and uh, what do you think it um, benefits our society and how does it help professors
1: um how does it help professors is not something that i would look at right we are a very small community you know it's like okay academics is fine But uh, we might have some academic benefits in doing these things. But I really think that the benefits of doing these kinds of things is much wider than how it helps academics or how it helps professors. So it helps society in general. Right? the fact that we can we have the ability to build those kinds of uh, launch vehicles, we have the rockets which will be able to launch those satellites and we uh, have the techniques to be able to navigate and put the Aditya L1 at the Lagrange point L1, right? Which is very, very far away. We precisely navigate um, a spacecraft in order to go in that specific point in space. All of these techniques that mankind or a nation or a community or society accumulates is all benefits in the long term you know these are very very essential for our uh, you know well being today we are a very highly technical society now you can just look around you how many gadgets and how technology is all around you and so these things bring incredible spin offs which many things we are not even aware of today you do these things today without knowing 10 years from now 15 years from now 20 years from now 50 years from now They will bring you returns, which you cannot even foresee today. It's very, very important to do all of these things, you know, do everything, launch all these satellites, build up all of these techniques. You have to do all of it. I don't pick and choose. I don't say this is important. This is not important. You know, it's important to do all of it because it should be an overall development. And only that is healthy for society. You know, if you make it very lopsided, OK, I'm only going to develop space. I'm only going to develop atomic technology. I'm going to only develop in biology. I'm going to only develop in chemistry. That's a very short-sighted view, right? I mean, you need developments in all of it. Anything that a society can do, we as a community can do, we should go for it. We should dream big and we should go for it. And we have seen time and again when uh, societies do it, immense rewards come later on which you can see, right? I'm sure you can appreciate that almost all of those things were never foreseen. All of the rewards that that we achieved or we have got, no, I shouldn't say all, many of it is without foreseen. Some you might do targeted development and so on, right? But many things come as some spin-off without even aiming for it. And so we should be open to it. So, in that context is what I would view uh, Aditya L1 mission or Chandrayaan, all of these things in that context. Thank you, sir.
0: That was a very perceptive view and um, I would like to ask another question. It is about how specialization is rapidly increasing in all of the sciences. Like um, like you mentioned that uh, you work in the in theory like not experiment so do you think specialization is getting rapidly faster in in uh, in study fields
1: yes so that's a very perceptive uh, question so um, again let me give you few different uh, answers so uh, okay firstly what you say what you recognize is a fact things have got very specialized they have got very technical because you can appreciate that as we move to more and more hidden domains at least if i restrict myself to uh, you know some uh, aspects of science as we are talking about you know they have got very uh, non trivial to dig out <laughs> And so how is it that you can dig out all of the things, you know, inner workings at the scale of 10 to the minus 18 centimeters without deploying very specialized techniques? They don't come easily, right? So you need to do a whole series of things before phenomena at that scale becomes apparent to you. Otherwise they will simply not show, right? So you need to train yourself and you need to be able to build all of those equipment it's a very long learning process for society as a whole and for individuals also right each one of us should train ourselves in order to be able to do that and collectively as a society we should be able to achieve it so that incredible amount of training takes a long time and you need specialization it will not come easily you cannot just go do some course for like one year, two years, three years, five years is still not sufficient. You need perhaps a training of the order of decades before you become proficient enough in these things in order to operate in that. You can see it across the board. Let's say you take uh, some computer technology today, right? Making chips. They've got so fine scale, so incredibly tiny, the feature size of transistors and all that. If you have to design a current uh, microprocessor today, or a chip, semiconductor chip, imagine the amount of specialization that you need in order to be able to do it. It's incredible, right? So as our uh, technology advances, it is inevitable, I think, that we will get to a more and more specialized sphere of operating. And it becomes very hard for humans to grapple with that, because our Uh, training takes time and you know it have gone to order of decades now and so this um, is a fact that you have recognized and I do think that that it has become very specialized and on the flip side let me also tell you that this is not something that I like you know it's like we know the you know earlier you asked about you know interconnectedness of science or whatever Yes. We can see many, many instances where it is all interconnected. But as humans, we are not able to assemble in a single brain all of this very different, specialized uh, knowledge that has come up in many, many different fields. We have to struggle with it. You know, if I am proficient in one subfield, I may know very little about something in a different field which may still be related to it. because it has got so specialized I would struggle in order to know even a little bit about that those advances and all that so it's a constant struggle in order to uh, get some inkling of what that knowledge might be because it needs some amount of uh, you know awareness and training which again goes back to that earlier point so if you have always been reading widely and you know like all kinds of different things Without knowing, you might have assembled many different things, which will help you later on, you know, when you see the interconnectedness of things. You might be able to take a technique from here and apply it in some very different field, um, which many people would not have seen. Many, many advances in science come that way. You know, take a domain of expertise in one, but apply it somewhere else. And if you are a very widely aware individual, that can be done. that comes with a very broad set of interests and uh, that will help you but you know both of those work you know being broad has its own advantages and being very specific and narrow will help you also go very very deep and find something about nature so they all work so whatever seems interesting to you you know is the way that you should uh, go forward but it's okay you know, we do something and anything we do, we should not look for very specific things. You know, that's, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's uh, one thing I can say.
0: Thank you, sir. Actually, your technology point leads
1: to my next question.
0: Um, so, as technology progresses, do you think it has a more, like a more impacting effect on um, on like studying in a certain field or researching more. Like for example, um, we have uh, launched the James Webb Telescope and uh, now it's more advanced than the Hubble Telescope. So do you think as technology progresses, our field of study gets more and more deeper?
1: Yes, so um, I think so. Because um, it is like um, uh, a sphere. I don't know who has said this. I have come across this. uh, Many people say this thing like it is like a sphere, right? I mean, our domain of knowledge is an expanding sphere, right? So we know more and more and more, right? Compared to uh, early cave people, right? We know much more as a society today. And so it is a constantly expanding domain of knowledge, and so um, one needs to be aware of it in order to operate, right? And so we do operate with an expanding sphere of, uh, you know, like knowledge, and um, you know there is much more things that we can know today compared to, let's say, uh, ten years ago or twenty years ago, because this sphere has increased and so therefore there are many many more things to know and it has gone deeper because always the low-hanging fruits are the ones to be picked first. You know cave people figured out a few things as they could see around themselves, right? And those things were done. The next non-trivial thing was done by people who came later, right? And so it was slightly more non-trivial for them to know those facts and people who came even later had to work slightly harder in order to know things right so it is always you know getting more and more hidden from us and in order to dig those things out it is a little bit more difficult as we progress and so i suppose that you are referring to that one that as we go along Things become a little bit more non-trivial a little bit more complicated and that much harder but also it is true that as we go farther some of the things that came discovered the wheel in order to uh, manufacture a wheel they had to struggle a lot Yes. Today we have the tools to do the wheel, you know, like in triviality, right? I mean, it's not that hard to manufacture a wheel today. In fact, our yes. factory spit out wheels at the rate of millions, uh, you know, an hour or millions a day or something, right? So those early things have become very easy now. We don't have to struggle so much about it. that. Is also a fact, right? So what came very, very difficultly to our ancestors now comes very easily to us. And so that is also there, which is making things easier. But it is also an expanding domain of knowledge. So in order to uh, deal with it, it is also more challenging. So there are some simplifications, some challenges. But on the balance of it, I think I tend to agree that things have become more non-trivial and more challenging. Um, but we have to recognize that some things are much easier today compared to others. Yes, sir
0: sir uh, my final question for you is that uh, do you have any advice for students like me going through school and aspiring to be uh, aspiring to have a career in a research based profession like is there any advice you would like to give
1: the most basic advice i would give is something that i already said maintain a healthy interest right if there is interest Everything else will come automatically. You will yes, figure out what one, kinds of things. One more do. question. Sir. You will.
0: Is uh, yeah. confidence important or willing to learn important?
1: I would put willing to learn uh, as the more basic thing. I don't know what is confidence. I, I mean, if you want to learn, whether you are confident or not, you may perhaps be motivated to seek out that thing, right? Yes. Sir. You know, it's like yeah that is more in my confidence might be a a byproduct which comes about or not i don't know right even if it is not there it is fine i mean if you if you are seeking information you're learning but you're not confident that should be fine too right i mean that should not be the end of it right usually i suspect what happens is when you have learned something well enough you become more confident because you know that thing sir best, right? so you are automatically sorry, sir. There. actually i would so like to you cannot put the uh, yeah Is
0: yeah please curiosity important or willing to learn important
1: um i i cannot separate those two somehow curiosity might be a more fundamental uh, uh, thing right If there is curiosity, then automatically, if the circumstances present, of course, right. Many times we are curious, but we are not able to pursue something because of the society we live in, the structure we live in. Yes, you know, it's like um, um, uh, circumstances, right. We may not be able to pursue that. So I would say that curiosity is more of a necessary condition or something which will then help you. You know, then go right. And if the circumstances allow, then perhaps, you know, you can uh, maybe uh, go for it. Yes, sir. And then willingness to learn is also important. If you're curious, you're willing to learn. And if circumstances uh, present itself, you will learn, right? Yeah, I would uh, tend to say that, you know, like, as you perhaps are hinting, that curiosity is important. Yes, sir.
0: So can we move back to the advice, sir?
1: OK. So what, uh, um, what is uh, the advice which I have still not given you that is still lacking? I'm, I can you uh, make a question which is sharper or something so that I don't know what advice you or oh, you meant like in order to go to the research uh, profession or something? Yeah, you, I would say curiosity is uh, important, right? as you hinted, and uh, second thing is give yourself time, because as we have said, things have become quite non-trivial and um, you should be uh, willing to live in a state where you are, you know that we are ignorant, or you know that you are ignorant yourself, you know, that should be fine with you, you know, it is like, it is part of the research existence because you're trying to find something out. You don't know that and that should be fine. You know, many things we are ignorant about many things and it should be fine and we go assemble that knowledge which is required in order to solve a problem or something. This uh, being able to deal with a lot of unknowns where there are no, no methods already prescribed in order to find something you do this and you do this and you do this and you will reach the answer. That's not true in research, right? Because many times you are de- dealing with unknowns. Nobody knows what path you should take in order to uh, find the answer to the research problem that you have posed. First, uh, first is that. Second is what are the kinds of problems that you must pose? That also is an art in itself, right? It's not, it is not, um, easy to know what are the kinds of uh, questions that you should pose, which are um, answerable, will lead you in the right path to going somewhere else, right? And asking the right questions is also uh, some skill that one should learn. And so these are all aspects of uh, having a research career, that you learn these things that, you know, like, what are the techniques, of course, as I pointed out, they're all very special. So you should train yourself in the technique. And so all of these things are education kinds of things that one must assemble. And these things take time. So in the end, you should give yourself time. There are no quick quick, uh, fixes or quick paths to all of these things. It takes a long time. You should be patient. You should stay curious for long from school till whenever, right? lifelong. It's just that you keep going and if the circumstances allow keep going. And every single day you wake up, you learn something new, you assemble that one new technique, you train yourself in that one small thing. It is all small steps always, right? There are no giant leaps in this business. I mean, each thing is a very painstakingly done small thing, which you learn day by day by day. So I would say as advice, give yourself time. Have some kind of a vision for where you might want to go. Try to go in that path. As you go, you will learn more about it and you can fine tune the path. You will know that, okay, this is not working out so well. Change it a bit, see if that works. No minor course corrections kind of thing every time. And done over long periods of time, you might end up somewhere. So that's what I can say. I don't know if that answered what you were uh, asking about.
0: Sir, it answered uh, and um, gave me a lot of advice and all of the audience watching. So finally, I would like to thank you for joining me in this podcast and giving some extremely insightful uh, information to all of the students who are watching this podcast.